November 27, 2011, lecture discussion number 47 on the book of uh, Romans. Now, before we begin, uh, I'd like to um, thank some folks and uh, mention some folks from the Internet side of things and folks that have either called or sent messages. I, I did, I, I had a wonderful gentleman named Angelo. I told him to, that I would mention him today that called me from Bermuda, of all places, huh? yeah, where the weather is significantly different than here. But uh, um, just, just there are folks out there that are finding us from all over the place. I didn't ask him how he got us, but uh, a sermon audio, I believe, is where it is, which, by the way, we have set another record for downloads. For another, that's our third or fourth month in a row. So be prepared for these folks. Uh, they want to know things. And they're asking questions. And we want to be the place that has as many of the answers as we can be. And that is why I do what I do and take the time to um, handle it the way I handle it. I'm hearing voices again. Is anybody else? Is it the radio? No, it's talkers. Sometimes the radio bleeds over. And no, it's not me on my own hearing them. There are witnesses that also heard them. Yes, there you go. Thank you for that, for admitting it. But anyway, Angelo, I just told him to please keep calling and please keep listening. And I sent him to Dave and all of you folks on the Internet. If you have questions, I do, uh, I do answer the phone. Ask Angelo. Also, uh, Murray Flint from Sacramento uh, was very kind to us, and uh, I wanted to say thank you, and I wanted him to know that uh, we're, uh, we're cheering for his uh, new wedding that he just had, his uh, marriage. So, uh, Murray, we know you're out there, baby, so have fun. And, and uh, Gabriel G. Smith from South Africa. So we're now in South Africa. And... The question that was raised by, by I think Gabriel is a, I'm not sure, it could be Gabriel, I suppose, but anyway, I think Gabriel asked about um, um, supernova remnants. You remember supernova remnants from a few weeks back, and I wanted to let him know that that's why I'm doing Einstein's general theory and special relativity uh, positions um, with regard to the speed of light. That's why we're doing interferometers and wave particle duality is because eventually we're going back into um, distant starlight and supernovas. And you have to understand all of that so that you can figure it, in, figure it together as best we can. And then there's Pegathy and Jay here in Anchorage. And I just wanted to say hi to them. They have been extremely uh, wonderful to us. And I don't ever see them much except at softball games here uh, and the like. And then uh, Jennifer, Jennifer from Arizona. Now, this was kind of funny. I should read some of these for you really fast. Here's a Gabriel from um, South Africa. Hi. Thank Christ for your insights, the way the templates all fit together, the pictures, the meticulous order, the awesome and incredible vastness. God, it seems the Holy Spirit has endowed uh, to hear this, that we may still enjoy it as we may enjoy your MP3s. I think I got that right. I, I doing my best to read it. My eyes aren't doing so good here. I know you'll continue to the end. Behold the hope of glory in Christus Gabriel G. Smith uh, and then uh, South Africa. So, and then here's another. Uh, he wanted to talk to me about supernova remnants, which I had mentioned, and the gentleman who has a position on it. And we will get to that, I promise. Here's Jennifer from Arizona as you should all know her by now. 
And she writes this, and I'm mentioning it because uh, there's something that we did, that, or Lori did, that's, uh, well, I'll just go. Hi, Pastor. In my opinion, your November 20th sermon, excuse me, is the best yet. That was another Thanksgiving dinner, and I'm not trying to burn this one off. It's going to soak in and fatten me up nice. Good stuff. Going to check out the Ezekiel 13 now. Glad your throat is better. We have obsessive throat clearing issues in my dad's side of the family. I do believe it is genetic. It really irritates the lining, especially if there is a post-nasal drip, too. You should get off of that medicine. Too acidic. Reflux will mess up the throat, too. Anywho, hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Jennifer. Thank you, Jennifer. Lori read this to me. This is how Lori read it. You should get off that medicine. You're too idiotic. (laughs) So Lori projected herself into the text. But anyway, just wanted you to let you know that uh, we have all kinds of folks out there, and I hope it encourages you. It certainly encourages us, uh, me and Lori and, and Dave and Ben and Kurt out there, to know that all of those guys are there. Now, Jennifer, the reason I really ended with her is because she uh, mentioned that she was going to run over to Ezekiel 13. And I, as I thought about it, I realized, okay, I know when I tell you to do things like that, you don't always do it. And so I thought I would just skim through it a little bit. I made the comment last week that I think Ezekiel 13 is absolutely important for every Christian to read in this particular age, especially since 19, oh, maybe 15 or so, uh, when all kinds of folks came out with all kinds of uh, uh, strange doctrines. Uh, Let me just read a few things. This is something you always read uh, when people knock on your door. Uh, Thus says the Lord God, woe to the foolish prophets. So first thing off the bat, try to figure out who he's talking about. Who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. In other words, there are people who will claim they are prophets and they follow their own spirits and they have seen nothing. And he says, woe to them. O Israel, your prophets are like foxes in the deserts. You have not gone up into the gaps to build a wall for the house of Israel to stand in battle on the day of the Lord. They have envisioned futility and false divination, saying, Thus says the Lord, but the Lord has not sent them. And ever since I read that when I was a young man, I have been very suspicious of people who say, Thus says the Lord. Really. Be very careful if you're going to say, I would be, if I would, I can't imagine somebody that would not be shaking in his feet and say, if you say, thus says the Lord, what, what better come next? Scripture. At least you can count on that. Let me finish. Have you not seen a futile vision? Have you not spoken with false divination? You say the Lord says, but I have not spoken. You think that would bother people, but it don't. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have spoken nonsense and envisioned lies, 
Therefore, I am indeed against you, says the Lord God. And I ain't better than that, I ain't tougher than that. I could walk around this city and read that in a hundred churches where that goes on. And not one of them would stop. How come? Too much money in saying, thus says the Lord. Let me go over here to 18. Thus says the Lord God. This is the real thus says the Lord God. Woe to the women who sew magic charms on their sleeves and make veils for the heads of people on every height to hunt souls. Will you hunt the souls of my people and keep yourselves alive? Down to verse 20. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against your magic charms by which you hunt souls like birds. I will tear them from your arms and let the souls go, the souls you hunt like birds. I will also tear off your veils and deliver my people out of your hand. They shall no longer be as prey in your hand. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Because with lies you have made the heart of the righteous sad, who I have not made sad, and you have strengthened the hand of the wicked so that he does not turn from his wicked ways to save his life. He's against it. You would think people would care. Okay, just wanted to read that to you, because I know you wouldn't read it yourself. I have to make you. That's not true. Some of you are dutiful and wonderful, and I appreciate you both. I'm kidding. <laughs> but that's a very important uh, uh, passage of Scripture, all kidding aside. And uh, again, it stuns me that no one seems to be afraid of it. I would think they would be. I will assure you, someday they will be. Okay, here we go. Phase two, uh, more framing, if you will, of uh, Romans, of the book of Romans, where we were. Last Sunday, we returned to Romans chapter four, if you remember, and that's the contrast that is salvation by grace and belief. There's this wonderful contrast that he is putting here, where he puts belief on one side and completely on the other side, he puts works. There is no possibility that that gap can be bridged. It is as contrasting as contrasting can be. Salvation by grace, belief, and faith, and works on the other side, which is counted as debt. Romans chapter 4 is where the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, makes it powerful, makes it definitive. It makes this comparison between belief and grace and human effort. And there is no possibility they commingle. That's Romans 4. It is another of the places in Romans that all Christians must know. By now, I hope you know, it's on your list, Romans 1.17. The just shall live by faith. That should be on your list. Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible is clearly seen. Notice I left out attributes because it's in italics and therefore not in the text. And translators have decided to add it to the text because they think it gives it more clarity. 
But it really says just this. For since the creation of the world, his invisible is clearly seen. Very important. Romans 1, 24, 25 is another one of these. Therefore, God gave them up to uncleanness. And if you are unclean, what are you? Doomed. Yes, you're unsaved. Therefore, God gave them up to uncleanness. Those who exchange the truth of God. Who is the truth of God? That's Jesus Christ. For the lie. Who is the lie? That is the Antichrist. And worshipped and served the creature, or let's put it this way, the beast. Who's that? That's the Antichrist. Rather than the Creator. Who's the Creator? Jesus Christ. So that verse gives you a Christ-Antichrist context. Let me read it again. Therefore God gave them up to uncleanness, those who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. And that is your, uh, that goes on in the context of being the darkened, debased uh, mind passage where the mind, the supernatural mind becomes darkened. It tells you something about the, the mind. And then Romans 2.1, therefore you are without excuse, O man. That's one of the, that's the third or is it third or the fourth? That is the fourth one. And now, uh, of course, you would know this one, I hope. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. That is another place in Romans that you should know where it is immediately, along with the others. And now we have Romans 4.3. Romans 4.3, and you'll see, that's why I call Romans the Leviticus of the New Testament, because of what is there, verse after verse. What does the Scripture say? What does the Scripture say? Not what does the pastor say. Not what does you. What do you feel? Not do what. What does some commentator think? What does the Scripture say? Does it matter to you what the Scripture said? You would think most people would answer yes. That's why I read Ezekiel 13. Hundreds of thousands of churches that don't care about Ezekiel 13 in this, in this country. It sprung up, frankly, out of, a 19, out of the 1920s movements. What does the Scripture say? Let's read that. Here we are, 4, 1 through 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, what's that mean? If Abraham was saved by human-based effort, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? And then it quotes Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God. Let me repeat. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Righteousness. Now, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. 
The Scripture, Genesis 15, 6, says as clear and as pure and as complete and as strongly as possible that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So Abraham believed God and there we have this accounting process. And I put it this way last week. And, and I'm trying to catch everybody else up today as best I can. Phase two, if you want to think of it this way, Abraham has uh, accounting. What's on the accounting ledger? It is filled completely black and totally what? Debt. He's in debt. And God transferred righteousness to that accounting ledger. Abraham had no righteousness and he's called the father of all who believe. What's that mean? Is he literally the father of all who believe? No. He is the model. He's the example. He's the forerunner. Okay? Of all who believe. And he had righteousness. All he had was debt. Nothing but debt. And he had righteousness. Here. I'll try to do it this way. All of that. All he's got is debt. Total, complete debt. And he had righteousness transferred to his account. It's literally what? It's a savings account. Duh. It's what it is. He has a savings account. He's got nothing in it. In fact, his savings account's in debt. And he had righteousness given to him. And now... The debt is gone completely, and he has righteousness there. Because why? Because, Genesis 15, 6, he believed God. Now, last Sunday, I asked the most obvious of the obvious questions, and I asked uh, this one, from where did the righteousness come? Where do you get righteousness? Who has righteousness? How do you get it? By what means? What is the source of righteousness? All those pretty much the same question. It actually is the same question is, where is the source of life? Where do I get the life blood? Where do I get sinless flesh? How do I find it? Who's got it? Now, is there anybody today that opens up a store and puts salvation for sale here, pay 20 bucks? Does anybody do that? Oh yeah, they do it all over the world. Do they have, they have people that buy it? They have it all over the world, people doing it. But do they have any righteousness to sell? Do they have any life blood? Do they have any salvation? They have nothing, but yet they're still able to sell it. What makes them do it? Why aren't they afraid? And yes, Natalia, you can hit him. Go right ahead. It's okay. We will all cheer. It is. It's the same question. Where is the source of life? Where is the lifeblood? Where is the sin sinless flesh? Who has it? And that becomes the point. Salvation, justification, eternal life, righteousness, whatever term you wish to utilize, 
it must be transferred from God himself. He's the only one that has it. That is why in order for Christ to die for your sins, he must be able to transfer righteousness. That means he must be God, right? God is the only life source. Life comes from him. That's why we study the law of biogenesis. Life only comes from life. In spite of what they will tell you in your geology classes, where they will tell you that life came from a rock. That's in violation of the law of biogenesis, not the theory of biogenesis, not the idea of biogenesis, the law of biogenesis. Life only comes from life, and life only comes from God. We are in sin death. Start thinking of it that way. I don't say it this way enough. I used to do it a lot. I made my own word. How shocking is that? Sin death, because it's all the same. Sin cannot be separated from death. Death cannot be separated from sin. Sin and death are together. They are linked. Our ledger is filled with sin death, sin death and debt. In order for us to have righteousness, it's necessary for righteousness to be taken from somebody who has it. So they have to, it has to be taken, and then it has to be credited from us. Think of it as you would, it's an accounting procedure as well as a legal one. But, but the focus for today is on the accounting side. The word accounted or imputed definitely has a legal and an accounting uh, uh, definitions. Now, so I have to have something credited to my account. That means I have to go someplace that has righteousness, and I have to take it from them. That's how it works. It's got to be taken from somebody else and credited to us. I, I used to say, think zero-sum game, if that helps. Doctrinally, that's not sound. All our righteousness had to be taken and given. God must then take his own righteousness and impute it. Impute meaning to assign, to credit. It's a one-sided transaction. Abraham was given righteousness. And he is the example for all who believe. He's filled with brim, filled to the brim with debt in his account. Debt so overwhelming that it's unpayable. It's unpayable debt. And the consequences of not paying the debt is what? The second death. And then suddenly, click, the debt is gone. And life is on the sheet. God had taken Abraham's debt, cleared it from Abraham's account, and replaced it with righteousness, which God had taken from himself. That's how it works. Now, that catches everybody up. Starting the sermon. Here is the point of Romans chapter 4. Why did God do it? Why does he do this? Why does he do it? That is why that verse is so important. What does the scripture say? Does the scripture say that Abraham was owed the salvation? That Abraham had earned the salvation? 
through some kind of process that Abraham performed. Does the scripture say that? No, it doesn't say that. You see, if you subscribe to some supposed doctrine that demands that human-based work is necessary in order for salvation to be transferred from your from somebody else's account who has it, and there's only one somebody who has it, and given to you, if you if that's your doctrine, what's implied by that? What's implied is that you're owed the salvation. If your doctrine is, is that you have done something, because here we are again, now this, is, this I'll call God's ledger sheet, and I'll draw your ledger sheet. Okay, can you see it? I hope not, because if you can, I drew you too big. I have to have righteousness transferred, taken from here, and put in there. Why? Why does he do it? <clears throat> is it because you earned it? Clearly, it's not because you earned it. I mean, I hope that's so obvious that you don't... But, but understand that if you, have, you, if you have done something, I don't care how small you think it is, if you think you are doing something that gets you salvation, then you have made God someone who owes it, which means you have made God someone who must pay it. He must pay it. He will pay his debts. You have made God in debt to you, haven't you? That's your doctrinal belief. God, therefore, owes salvation to the worker. And now consider that. God owes. God is in debt. Is that your doctrine? You really want to defend that? God must pay up because you earned it? I keep saying to people that call me with this and talk to me about this, please consider the absurdity of such thinking that God is owing you or owing me or owing anyone anything, much less his own righteousness. First, you know, you've got to believe that the blood of Christ is finite to have that position. Do you see that? Because why? Because it is the blood of Christ, ultimately, that is transferred. That righteousness is transferred and cleans us. Right? It comes from here. He takes it out of here. And he puts it over here. Click. What does the Scripture say that he does it for? Why does he do it? But you must believe that the blood of Christ is finite if you think he owes it to you. Why, why must it be finite? Because you did something to earn it, didn't you? And if you can do something to earn it, then it must be finite, and therefore Christ is not God. Do you understand that? If I can do something to earn it, it must be finite. Do you get that part? Why must it be finite if I can do something to earn it? Because I am finite. Therefore, if I can do something that will earn it, it must be finite. Because I cannot do something and earn something that is infinite. So if you have a works-based and a lot of people tell me, well, I am saved by grace, but I am kept by my works. Well, then the blood of Christ is finite. And he is not God. And if he is not God, oh, this will get me in trouble. almost did it. Huh. If he is not God, too bad to be us. Okay? 
And if you have the position that you have some kind of, that God owes you salvation, that is blasphemy, that is heresy, that is evil, because you have denied that Christ is God immediately. John 8:24, Christ speaking, Therefore I say to you that you will perish in your sins, for if you do not believe, I am which is a reference to the name of God, the two names. you got to know your two names. Oops. There they are. What they mean. One, what does YHVH mean? Yahweh, if you will. What does that mean? I did it a couple weeks ago. What's it mean? Goodness. God is good. You, you've got to know that. What does the I am mean? The other name of God. What's it mean? Creator of space, time, energy, matter. Okay? You must believe that he is creator God and that he is good. That's what his names mean. If you do not believe that he is the creator of God, you will perish in your sin. Notice how he says it. For if you do not believe I am, believe I am. If you don't believe, you will perish in your sin. That's how I handle the Jehovah's Witnesses every time they knock on the door. Do you believe he is the I am? What do they always answer? No. Do you believe that he is good? What do they always answer? No. How come they say no? Because his body is not resurrected. If his body is not resurrected, what happened to it? It decayed, went into corruption. What causes the corruption? Send it. These do not, sin and good, do not fit. You can't be one and have any of the other. And if your body goes into corruption, then you are not good. Any system that says a created finite being can somehow, through effort, through works, accumulate enough to purchase the infinite blood of Jesus Christ has violated John 8.24 and is therefore immediately blasphemy, doomed, and condemned. We must believe He is God, the I Am, the creator of space, energy, matter, time, or we will perish. Have no hint or something that is otherwise in your basket, in your doctrinal basket that you go around and collect all your doctrine. If you have anything that says He is not infinite creator and, and, and He is not good, then you will perish, John 824, as simple as that. Purge it out. I also want you to consider the level of disrespect and the level of arrogance that exists in those who believe that God owes them salvation for what they have done. Wow. I am doing something so good that God owes me salvation. Consider that for a second. That's that's very common. I don't know what I can say or what can be said to these people. They are at a place that no one should ever go. What are they doing? People with that belief. God owes me my salvation for what I have done. Where are they? They have elevated themselves and they have lowered God into sin simultaneously. And by the way, this kind of indefensible doctrine, we should anticipate that it would be around today because we are in the age of Laodicea, Revelation 3.16, the vomit age. 
as illogical as it is, as human-centered as it is, it is nonetheless very much the norm today. This is the age of what? Give your kid a what? No matter how many... He runs out on the field and, and stops in the middle of the field and throws daisies in the air while everybody else herds the soccer ball. What does he get? He gets a trophy. This is the age of everybody gets a trophy. Right? It's all about how I feel. Trophies for all. The age of me. It's all about me. So it's easy to understand that this is so. That humanity loves this kind of thinking. And that it is in the church at a very deep level. Because God's system requires that man do what? Man humble himself. That mankind mourn for his condition. That mankind admit that he is hopeless to ever save himself. That is what God says. That is what the scriptures say. And there's a, and mankind doesn't like that much. Mankind is, we're all this way. We're proud. We're haughty. We puff ourselves up. We want to be part of the process. We want to inject ourselves into the system. And by the way, there's a lot of money in telling people how they can save themselves. Lines will go around the block. You will have buckets and garbage bags full of cash. But try instead preaching Revelation 3, 17 and 18. Again, these are the words of Christ. You do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked, ashamed. Deserving of condemnation. There is nothing nothing worse than not knowing that we are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And that we have a balance sheet filled with death. That's a bad place to be and a bad place to stay, the not knowing place. But preach that and watch what happens. That's why I try to say driving away the visitors every Sunday here at Cliffside Community Chapel. What does the Scripture say? How did Abraham get his burden, his ledger sheet, his sins erased, taken, from him and righteousness, justification, eternal life put on and taken from somebody else who is God. What does the scripture say? Abraham did something. I'll give you that. What did he do? He believed. Okay. That's what he did. God's system is a belief-based system. Everybody always says, well, that's too easy. What's the upper option? If it isn't belief, what's the other option? Has to be works. There isn't any other option. If it isn't given, you must have to earn it. If it's earned, then he is an infinite. Then he owes you. This is the only way it could work. How shocked are you by that? Lucky God thought it through again. Sure handy to be omniscient. Abraham believed God, and belief is the opposite, absolute, total, complete opposite of human-based works and effort. Belief, faith, and grace equals salvation and life. Works equals debt, condemnation, death, heresy, blasphemy. That's the truth. Can't say it any better, I hope. 
That is what the scriptures say. And people don't like hearing that. They want to modify the equation. They add all kinds of addendums. This is what we call addendums. Addendums. Please laugh. The internet won't know. It's our own little secret. Okay, the, all kinds of addendums here. The most popular is the rescission clause. That's probably in the most churches. They want the righteousness, the life, the salvation that God transferred from Himself to them to be rescindable. And yes, it is true. It is true. Rescindable is a real word. Let me repeat it because of gracey grace. There are people today, churches everywhere today, that want the life and the salvation and the righteousness that God transferred to them to be rescindable. They want God to be a rescinder. Are much more common and completely predictable. They want to have the power to void the transaction themselves. They tell me so. I can be, I can get rid of my salvation whenever I want. I have total and complete authority over it. I can vacate and void the transaction of righteousness given to me by God, taken from Himself. I have that power. All I have to do is be what? Disobedient. And I can do it. I can cancel it. And they love it, by the way. And they want God, as I said, to either be a rescinder or the much more common, and I can't say this enough, we should expect this kind of thinking today. People want the power to void the transaction, to cancel what God has done and restore their debt and restore their sentence of death. Now, immediately you might ask, who in their right mind would want either of those to be added to what the Scripture says? Who in their right mind would want salvation to be, or God to be a rescinder, or the transference to be rescindable? Who in their right mind would want the power to void or vacate that agreement? But you would be then accepting the premise that churches have a right mind to begin with. And I deal with this a lot. It has deep roots. It requires a backhoe. It takes dynamite to blow out the tentacles. It's not easy to, to, to wrestle with this with other people. It takes a trained professional. It, it, powerless people are loath to give up what they believe is their power. Humans have been inserting themselves into God's grace for centuries. So again, I know what I'm against. But consider what is being said about the character of Jesus Christ if he will vacate his promise of salvation. Based on what? He will vacate his promise of salvation based on what? What would make him do it according to that system of supposed doctrine? What does this system say about the ability of his blood to cleanse sin if we possess the power to get rid of it? We can wash it off. By the way, what solution would you use to get the blood of Christ off of you? What is more powerful? What solution is more powerful? What cleansing agent do you have where you can remove the blood of Christ? 
See, ultimately, uh, this is a question of power. What is more powerful, his blood or our will? And what does it say of his wisdom, his omniscient wisdom, if he has put in place a plan of salvation that results in none being saved? Because that's what I said last week, and I believe it as fervently as I possibly can. I said it last Sunday. If it were true that each of us could destroy our own salvation, if each of us could reverse this ledger sheet transaction, if each of us can destroy ourselves after salvation, none of us would persevere. All of us would fail. Everyone. All of us would be lost. Such is the sin nature of man. So what does it say of his omniscience if he has put in a place a plan of salvation that results in none being saved? Is that your view? You want to defend that? Ultimately, then, it boils down to this question. Did God design a plan of salvation that is solely dependent upon the human recipient's ability and will to maintain his or her salvation? Is that his system? Is that what you think he designed? By the way, what percentages of churches today believe that? Yeah, a lot. I'm going to tell you what it is. That's what it is. That's astonishing to me. But it's because of human beings' idea of themselves, their own pride. What does such a concept, let me repeat it again so I don't lose Everyone on the, innocent, uh, on the internet. Did God design a plan of salvation that is solely dependent upon the human recipient's ability to maintain his or her own salvation? What does such a concept say about the goodness of God? What does it accuse God of? I submit that following it through its, to its natural end or natural progression, it will lead to its followers to blasphemy. It's in Isaiah 5.20. It's calling that which is evil good and him who is good evil. Now, what does the scripture say? It says, Abraham believed God. And I know, by the way, that you're gonna, people are gonna throw James at me and I'll cover that next week. The difference between Romans 4 and all of Romans, really, and James is simple, simply this. I don't want to say simple. It's not simple. And I shouldn't ever say that. This isn't easy. So many people are stunned by this. I don't know why, but it is what it is. Okay, Romans is talking about Abraham in a context of what chapter of Genesis? Genesis 15. Okay, if you want to add Genesis 12, I'll let you do that. But Romans is in the context of Genesis 15 and Genesis 12. Now, James is in the context of what? They both have an Abrahamic context. Both Romans has an Abrahamic context. It's Abraham in Genesis 15 and Genesis 12. Where is that in Abraham's life? That is the beginning of his salvation. That is when he got saved. Romans is about salvation. What is James about? It is about Genesis what? Genesis 22. 
Where is that in Abraham's life? That's the end of his life. Where he does what? He takes Isaac up on the very mountain to the very spot that Christ has picked to crucify himself. Hear me say that? By the way, I got a wonderful letter from uh, the big Earl down there in Sacramento where a, a Jewish woman who was raised in a, in a Christian neighborhood was told when she was little that uh, you're, you people killed our Lord. That is unfortunately as, as high as you can go in ignorance to say something like that because you just put a man, gave, gave a man the authority to kill God which is ridiculous. No one killed Christ. How did he die? He gave himself up. It's so clear as a bell. There's no possibility that you could ever say a man killed God any more than any other thing you want man to do. Why are you so proud of man's ability to do things, by the way? How big is man again? He is the smallest of all the small cockroaches. Why do you put so much authority in him and think he could do so many things? Get a clue. But James is about Genesis 22 when Abraham gives his witness. Roman is about his salvation. They're different. I'll explain it next week, I hope. More on that next week. Okay. Let me read as we wrap it up here. Romans 4, 9 through 12. Does this blessedness... And by the way, knowing that one thing about Romans and James uh, clears up all the what people say is a contradiction with Romans and James. It's really very fast. takes just a little bit of time. Romans 4, 9 through 12. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. He wasn't circumcised. That's what Paul's saying. So what did Paul just do? He said, you believe you are saved because you are what? Circumcised. Well, Abraham is the father of all of this. He's the model. He's the forerunner. He's the example for all who are saved. All who believe. Salvation is based on believing. The plan is a belief-based plan, not a works-based plan. Salvation is a what? I'm sorry. Circumcision is a what? It's an act. It's a sign. You say that you are, circ- or you are circumcised and therefore you are saved. You know how many people today believe that circumcision has saved them? A lot. Or they think something else is insert whatever tradition you wish here. Take out circumcision and put in something else that you have to perform. Because that's what the church says today, doesn't it? You must do this. You must have this. You must perform this. Blah, 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 blah. Don't care what it is. You've got to have a, a, a certificate. I always wanted to be the 11th Baptist Church of Anchorage. Always wanted to be that. And then I wanted to give away salvation certificates. You have an official salvation certificate from the 11th Baptist Church in Anchorage. What good is that to you? Does it mean you're saved? You have a certificate. It only costs you... What could I sell them for? I've often wondered. It's a joke. 
Hi, we have visitors today. Thank you for coming. Would you like to buy your salvation? I will sell it to you. Fifty bucks. Could I get a hundred? Do I hear a hundred fifty? It just, it just stuns me. But insert whatever you do. Insert, you have to be what? To be saved. What do they tell you? Pick a church. Pick a denomination. You don't have to shout it out. But you know they've said it to you. They have said it to me. Proof of your salvation is this. What's that? Membership. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're not saved unless you're a member here. Yeah, I should sell memberships too. What a great idea. <laughs> we'll take it any way we can get it, baby. But you have to be, you have to go through some tradition, some ritual, some ceremony in order to be saved. They'll tell you that today. What does the Scripture say? How was it transferred? Why was it transferred? Because Abraham believed God. End of story. Do not insert yourself into the process. Why do you want to insert yourself into the process? I will not be saved if I only believe. They will call that easy believism, by the way. I get that all the time. If you ever want to see... uh, uh, somebody set up easy believism on a tee and pound it out of the yard to go get Charles uh, Ryrie's uh, basic theology. Why did we pick, why do we say uh, it is easy to believe? Is it easy to believe? What did it take to get you to believe? How much power does it take to get you to believe? He asks that, doesn't he? He said, what takes more power? Saving somebody's soul, forgiving their sins, or making them walk. How much power does it take to get you to be saved to believe? What takes more power? My answer is that. Easy believism. I don't know where it came from. Well, I do know where it came from. It came from a bunch of people that wanted to say they're saved and you're not. Because they set themselves up as the authority and the judge of salvation. Beware of a human being who inserts himself into God's plan of salvation. Run, my little grasshoppers. Let's rise and be dismissed.